0: This afternoon comes from Romans chapter 6. This is in connection with Lord's Day 32, which deals with the question of good works. Why do we have them? Why do we need them in the Christian life? We'll read all of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So far from Romans. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 27, stanza 4, and 48 of your books of praise. There, the question is, Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image, so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits, and he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and that by our godly walk of life we we may win our neighbors for Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? By no means. Scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like... Shall inherit the kingdom of God. So far, the every Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, you notice, if you were looking carefully, you notice at the top of Lord's Day 32, there's the heading Our Thankfulness. This is the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism. And as we come to that part, it's always good to stop, take a step back, and and sort of reorient ourselves. Uh, The Catechism has taken us through the depth of our sin and misery in Lord's Days 1 to 4. We've had to look in, in great detail at how great our sin is, how desperate our condition is before God. We've seen that God will not overlook or excuse our sins. And we've come then to recognize our need for a Savior. And then we've begun looking at the Savior whom God has sent. That was part two. Uh, We've seen how He's the only Savior that could ever uh, save us, who could ever qualify to be our Savior And we've looked then at at everything, not just that Christ is, if you remember we looked at His names, Jesus Christ, Lord, Son of God, but also everything that He's done from His birth all the way through His resurrection until He ascended into heaven and now from heaven is gathering a church. All of that describes how Christ has saved us from our sin and misery, and that takes us right up to, to where we are. Well, the Catechism brings us then to the next question, which is now what? Uh, Or so what? Since we've been saved, what does that mean for our lives now here on earth? The Catechism asks it this way again since we've been delivered from our misery by grace alone, that's the emphasis there, through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? What role, what purpose, Do our good works serve if everything comes by grace uh, from Christ? I hope you recognize, brothers and sisters, what a practical question that is. It's a question that, whether you've asked it yourself or not, uh, it, it operates in our minds. If I'm already forgiven entirely through the grace of Christ, why should I fight against my sin? What difference will it make? Why should I wage the daily battle against lust, against greed, against envy, against uh, anger? Why should I strive for holiness? What difference does it make? Why should I spend time in Scripture if I'm saved anyways? Why should I give my time and energy and talent to serving the Lord and serving the church if it's all been bought for me anyways? It's a very practical Question and how you answer it really does make all the difference between a, a Christian life that is genuine and is well invested and well lived and a half hearted Christian life that holds itself to a certain standard and just strives to meet uh, that standard. And I mean that it's very easy to get this question wrong, and I think we do it instinctively more often than we realize. And it really makes all the difference between a a truly Christian life, a life that flows out of Christ, uh, versus a life that on the surface bears some resemblance to Christianity, but lacks the substance and is empty in between. Why do we live a Christian life? We want to know how to answer that question. So what we want to consider then this this afternoon are, are three things. First, the source of our new life, where it comes from. Second, the goal of our new life, what it aims towards. And finally, the joy of our new life, what benefits and joys we experience as a result of, of Christ changing us within. So the first thing that we need to address then is, is the source of our good works It's amazing uh, how the the catechism answers the question. I wonder if you noticed it as well. Uh, The question is, why should we do good works? And the catechism answers, because Christ. And it tells what Christ has done. And you think, what kind of answer is that? You're expecting it to say something more like, Uh, because now we have a certain obligation. Christ has done His part, now we have to do our part. Uh, Or, you know, now that Christ has set us free, we need to start living as a free people. But no, the Catechism instead says we do good works because Christ is doing them within us. It's quite a striking answer. Uh, The reason that the, the Catechism answers this way, though, is because... We need to understand that Christ's work did not just end on the cross. You ask an average Christian, probably many of you as well, uh, what, what is the gospel? And you would answer, if your neighbor asked you this, what's the gospel? You would answer, it's the, the good news, that Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins. And that's, it's a good answer, a little tweet-sized answer. But it's an incomplete answer. Christ's work did not end on on the cross. He came, 1 Peter uh, 2, he came for our healing. And that healing involves not just the payment of, of the debt that we owed to God, that was accomplished on the cross, but also the healing of our hearts. Jeremiah says our hearts are desperately sick. And, and Christ came to offer the payment for sin on the cross, but also through the Holy Spirit to lead us into new life. So if you like the, the, the short answer to the question, why should we do good works is because that's exactly what Christ came to save you for. Christ came to save you for good works. The the work of, of Jesus has as its ultimate goal our complete healing from sin and from all the consequences of sin. He took our sins to the cross that needed to happen and He condemned them there. But then on Sunday morning, He rose and through that also brought new life to us. And all of that is the Gospel. All of that is Christ's work for us. That's what Paul is talking about in in Romans 6. He's shown in the first several chapters how uh, we are saved by faith in Christ and not by works. And he comes to exactly the same question that we're facing now. If we're saved by faith, not by works, then why, why not keep on sinning? And Paul's answer to that is, you were baptized not just in, to, into Christ's death on the cross, but also into Christ's resurrection on Sunday morning. It's a strange phrase that, that he uses to, to be baptized into Christ's death. But it simply means this. Christ came as, as the second Adam, the, the covenantal head that, over us. So our representative. And he died on the cross in payment. That was, that was his death. And so all who, who belong to that Adam are paid for. But he didn't just stay dead we also rose, and as we belong to Him in His death, we also belong to Him in His new life. What that means for us then now is, when you were baptized into the name of Christ, you were united to Him in the eyes of God, such that not only are your sins paid for by His blood, but God sees you as a new person, as a new life in Christ after the resurrection. And so Paul says in verse 4, you were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, you too might walk in newness of life. So Christ's work didn't end on the cross. Otherwise, if Christ's work had ended on the cross, we would be wretched sinners still hating God, still in rebellion against God, but just with a new clean slate which wouldn't, of course, stay clean for long. Christ died for us in order to change us, to make us new. Not only to pay the price for our sins, but to give the new life that we need. And so we need to recognize that Christ's work continues even today. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ is at work within us, renewing us, busy with our hearts. And that's part of His work just as much as dying on the cross was part of His work. It's an essential part of the Gospel message. So the Catechism gives us that that correction. Then, if we're asking, why do we have to do good works? Why must we do good works? The first thing we want to recognize is that it's Christ doing them within us. That's where it all starts. It's truly an, an amazing and it's an incomprehensible uh, reality. We don't know how the Spirit of God works in our hearts. Jesus uses the metaphor of a, a vine and branches in, in John 15. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, it's that same idea of being baptized into him, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So our, our connection with Christ, our, our baptism into Christ, leads to fruit bearing. It, it means we're so united with Him that He is producing fruit in our lives. It's an amazing and, and yet mysterious truth that that's part of the Christian life. And though we don't understand it, we do witness it. We should be able to see it in our lives, and it's a joyful, amazing experience. See, if you were to tell me that, that Christ died for me so that I'm justified, but now it's up to me to live up to that, to, to, to live as someone who's justified, it's a hopeless uh, command. I can't do it. The old me is dead in sin. It isn't capable of living a new life. It doesn't even want to. It hates God. That's the the whole problem that got me to where I am in the first place. But Christ not only paid the price to reconcile me to God, but also now sends His Holy Spirit to make me into a person that can live in God's presence, to cause me to bear fruit. I have the pleasure and, and the privilege and the joy of experiencing Almighty God working within me. If you remember, we saw this also in our series in uh, Philippians where Paul says to the Philippians in, in chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's the, that's your part. Work it out. You must Do this for, he says, it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's how the Catechism is approaching this question too. Why do we have to work out our salvation? Because it's God who is at work within us, causing us both to want to do it and to have the strength and the power to do it. And so as Christians, we have the great privilege and pleasure of, witnessing Almighty God at work in our hearts and in our lives. We get to see Him changing us. And you should be able to see this over the years, to look back one year ago or five years ago and to recognize God has been working on me. God has been changing me over the years. That's the mystery of the Christian life, as the Spirit acts on our hearts and we find our hearts themselves changed as a result. So that's the the correction then that the catechism applies to the question. Just in case you thought it was up to you to start doing good works, it's true it happens within you. It's true your, your own heart, your own spirit, your own will, as the canons of Dort say, your own will acts. When you change, you can say, I changed. When you do good works, you can say, I did these good works. However, it was God doing them within me. So why do we do good works? Because of Christ. So that's that's how the catechism answers the question. It doesn't tell us, if you remember, the question is, why must I? The catechism simply answers why you do. Not why you must, but why you do, if indeed you are a Christian. If you're asking, why do I need to? Why do I have to? You're asking the wrong question. And that's what the catechism wants to drive home to us. Why must you do good works? Because that's the very purpose for which Christ saved you. If you're asking the question in the, first, in the first place, then you probably don't even understand your salvation. Christ saved you from sin. If you're asking, why can't I sin now that Christ has saved you, has saved me, then you don't understand what He saved you from not just the consequences of sin, eternal wrath, eternal hell, but from sin itself. That's what salvation means, to be reconciled to God, to be not just forgiven, but then also brought into fellowship with God. Paul says it this way in uh, Ephesians 2, verse 10, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the whole purpose of our salvation, why were we saved? So that we would walk in good works. Which obviously means then putting sin to death in order to walk a life that's pleasing to God. See, there's really only, there's only two kinds of lives. There's life apart. From God, which is sin and ultimately leads to death. And there's life with God that leads to righteousness. That's the point that Paul makes. There's there's no in between. There's no such thing as life with God, but also in sin. It's It's a contradiction in terms. If you love Christ, you hate sin. If you love sin, you hate Christ. And so if you're asking, why must I do good works? I know Christ has saved me, but why do I have to now do good works? The point is, you don't yet understand the gospel and what you've been saved from. You need to know then the ugliness and the horror of sin which Christ came to save you from. You need to know that you were made for God. That you were made, your heart was made to find its joy and delight in God. And that your heart has fallen far from Him. You need to know that Christ died for the very purpose of bringing you back to God. And if you understand that, then you're not going to ask, why do I still have to do good works? You're going to understand, that's exactly what Christ came to enable me to do. You're going to ask, what kinds of good works can I do to please my God? Or as David asks in Psalm 116, what shall I render to my Savior now for all the riches of His consolation? And so if I embrace Christ's salvation, if I embrace His death in my place, then I must, just as earnestly, as part of the same gospel, I must also embrace His resurrection and the new life that He also gives me. And that's why we confess then that Christ, having redeemed us, also renews us. So that with our whole life, as the catechism says, we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits. That's what Christ was aiming towards. Renewed, regenerated, thankful, joyful hearts. That's the very purpose and goal of Christ's work. And isn't that really the pattern that you see throughout Scripture? If you think of the Ten Commandments, which we heard this morning, uh, what were the opening words? I am the Lord your God, now do as I say. No, I am the Lord your God. It could have been that way. He could have made that demand. He had that, that right. But no, it's I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. The commandments that follow are commandments that arise out of the deliverance that God has worked for us. What we do comes after what He has done and in response to what He has done. You see the the same pattern in all of Paul's letters as well. Paul tells us about the, the great and incomprehensible works that God does. And in almost every letter, he starts with that, uh, amazing rich theology and then when he's done he says therefore and then you see a whole bunch of exhortations to to good works think of romans for example paul writes the first 11 chapters of of romans the the richest and most astounding Letter that Paul ha- has written explaining all the unbelievable mercies of God and even finishing by, with the, the, the doxology, Oh, the riches of, of the glory of God. And then the very next words are, I appeal to you, therefore, and what follows are series of exhortations, commands, good works, all to be done because of what God has first done for us. So one more time, to answer the question, why must we do good works? We can, we can say not only, not only is that what Christ saved us for, but in fact, that's what salvation is. That's what it means to be saved, to live a new life in fellowship with God. And Christ does this not only for our good, but also for the Father's glory. It's another point that the catechism raises, and we need to understand it. So we can answer the question another way, too. Why must we do good works? Because Christ saved us not only so that we would be reconciled to God for our good, but also because this would bring God glory. If you look at the, the words of the, the catechism, you'll notice there's, there's two sides to the main part of the answer Says that we may show ourselves thankful to God and that he may be praised by us. Those are the, the two sides. And I would argue that, and I think this is what the Catechism is, is arguing as well, that those two reasons are really fundamentally one reason. Our gratitude to God is the very means by which he is glorified. He's glorified when we rejoice in him. The reason, then, that Christ saved us and, and now is busy renewing us is so that our lives would be filled with gratitude and in that very way the Father would be glorified. This becomes really, really practical when we get to the Ten Commandments, which is where we're going very soon. And when we look at the Ten Commandments, we want to be asking not just how can I keep this commandment, but also How could I use this commandment to God's glory? This is what I did with the catechism students last year when we worked through the commandments. We started every commandment with the question, what did God make us for? To know Him, to love Him, to live with Him. And how does this commandment then serve that end? That's what it's ultimately about. Using our lives for the glory of God. And so when we talk about glorifying God with our lives, what we mean is, We're using our lives to show, both to ourselves and to others, we're using our lives to show that nothing is more precious or more glorious or more worth living for than God. And so here's why this question then I said at the beginning, the way you answer this makes a huge difference on the life you live between a genuine Christian life and a life that resembles Christianity on the surface but lacks the substance. Here's why. If you're doing good works because you believe that you as a Christian now have to live up to a certain standard in order to to keep that title of Christian, that does nothing to to magnify the glory of God, which is your very life's purpose. That just magnifies your own glory to say, I'm good enough to keep this title. And the truth is, many of us, all of us at some times, think that way. Why do I got to do good works? Well, because as a Christian, you have to live up to a certain standard. No, the reason we do good works is because our, our hearts are filled with love for God and our desire is to, to magnify the glory of God. There's no standard. You can't, there's no how good do you have to be to be a Christian. You can't uh, lay out a certain standard. Your whole life as a Christian is devoted to God's glory. And so we need to understand that's what salvation is all about. Even greater than, than God's love for us is God's commitment to the highest and greatest pursuit of all, which is the pursuit of His glory. It's God's own highest pursuit. And to our ears, as we hear that, that might seem inappropriate. God, God would live for His glory? Is that, is that right? Isn't that... Egotistic? And we think that way because it, it would be if it was true for any one of us. To live for your own glory as, as a human being would be egotistic. Because your glory is finite. It's limited. It's, it's small. There's some there. We, we were made with, with glory. But it's small. It's, it's tiny. The glory of God is infinitely great and worthy of even God's own highest, and greatest pursuit. And so all of Christ's work also was aimed at that ultimate goal of God's glory. In fact, isn't that how, how the book of Romans ends? Um, it climaxes in the glory, in a doxology about the glory of God. Think of Paul in, in Ephesians 1, who also says that God predestined us to adoption as sons to the praise of the glory of His grace. What's God's goal? The praise of the glory of His grace. Take Isaiah 48, uh, verse 9. God says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that, you may, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not a silver, I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That's God's highest pursuit. And it's the thing for which Christ came to save us. For the ultimate goal of our lives glorifying God. And what's most amazing then is that if you think about it, God's pursuit of His glory is the most loving and kind thing that He could ever pursue for our sake as well. God's pursuit of His glory was the reason for creating us. God's pursuit of His glory was the reason for saving us and for sending Christ to die for us. And God's pursuit of His glory is also the reason that God renews us to make us more and more like Him. The goal is that our thankful lives, not not simply dutiful lives, doing what we believe we must do, but our thankful lives would serve the purpose of glorifying our God. Our our good works also serve to glorify God to our unbelieving neighbors. The Catechism adds that as almost an afterthought. And it, and it, it is. It's not the main reason but it is a further benefit. You can think of Jesus' words uh, in Matthew 5. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and, notice again, give glory to your Father in heaven. How many of you can think of others in your life whose lives have spurred you on towards greater holiness? Almost all of us can, can think of such examples. How many unbelievers, uh, when they go to church for the first time, they go because they saw someone's life who was changed or was uh, different. How many children come to know Christ because of the example of their parents. We should never uh, underestimate the impact that we have on those around us, both believers and unbelievers. Uh, When it talks about um, for the good of our neighbor, we shouldn't only think of unbelieving neighbors, but also our neighbors within the church, our brothers and sisters. And finally, if we need any further reason, so there's the main reason, there's the afterthought, and then there's one more reason, reason in the catechism, if we need a further reason to pursue lives of thankfulness, the catechism also reminds us that the fruit of such a life is greater and greater assurance in the gospel. And isn't that so true? Christ sends the Holy Spirit to us to renew our lives But that renewal doesn't happen instantly, it it happens over time, there's a process, and sometimes we feel frustrated that it's not happening fast enough. There there are times in that process where we find the old man rising up within us, resisting the work of the Spirit, and the result, when that happens, the result is a loss of assurance, we start to question, are we indeed Christians? Are we really saved? Would a Christian live like this? Would a Christian do the things that I do? The canons of Dort express uh, very well the, the, the effect of sin on our conscience. It says, uh, by such gross sins, uh, believers greatly offend God, incur the guilt of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound their consciences, and sometimes, for a while, lose the sense of God's favor. The devil, of course, doesn't miss out on that opportunity for a moment. In various places in the Bible, he's called the accuser. He's eager to point to our faults. And when we fall, he delights in it. And he uses that to direct our attention away from what Christ has done for us and to, to to lead us to believe that there's no hope for us, that Christ is not at work in our lives. Uh, that's the, the effect of sin. And the reverse, of course, is true. Uh, when we fight against sin and we witness the Spirit working within us, that, in turn, gives us greater assurance and comfort in the Gospel. That's why in, uh, in the second letter of Peter, Second Peter 1, Uh, Paul urges the believers there to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Notice he doesn't say to determine your calling and election. We don't determine that. God determines that for us. Uh, We don't get to choose God. God chooses us. But he does say, confirm your calling and election. When, when God has chosen us, one of the results will be that we not only repent and believe, but also begin to live new lives. And those new lives are evidence that Christ has called us. That's what Peter means when he says, Confirming your calling, prove it. Show that you have been called. Show that you are elect. Now these evidences, they are, to be sure, very small our catechism teaches us elsewhere that even the holiest in this life have only a small beginning of the righteousness that's required of them. And we recognize that the struggle that even great believers like Paul had to face. If, if, if you think of uh, what, what he says, where, where he says, when I, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And it's the struggle that if Paul experienced that, how much more do We? So we don't say that our lives are, are 90% of the way there. It's just a small beginning and yet there is fruit, isn't there? There is real fruit. We can look back and we can see God has been doing this in my life. And even those small fruits are evidence that the Spirit is indeed working in our lives and in our hearts. And, and so without uh, taking anything away then from what we've said earlier, that the main reason why we do good works is because that's what salvation is all about. That's what Christ came to save us for. Yet at the same time, we can also be driven and motivated and incentivized to good works because it's just so wonderful and reassuring to see them in our lives it 's not a wrong reason to desire to do good works so that we get to see them in our lives and be assured and strengthened in our our comfort in the gospel when, when we see in ourselves the response of faith and, and how it works out in our lives, it can be to us the most wonderful assurance, especially in times where we doubt our salvation we can look back and we can say i know that i'm saved because i've seen god working in my life and i know that what the holy spirit begins he will always finish think of uh, philippians 1 he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion it's a great comfort to know that if the spirit of uh, as he says in romans 6 if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead dwells in us then he who raised christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells within us. Now one final brief point. The fact that our lives ought to flow out of gratitude and not out of a desire to, to sort of meet a certain standard, that does not mean that Scripture never gives warnings concerning sin. There are Uh, warnings that are given. You you can see that in in the catechism itself, which quotes from uh, Paul in in 1 Corinthians. You can also see in in the text we've read in verses 6 through 8, 9, and 13, there's a a number of repeated warnings. If you're living in sin, you're not living in Christ. Now, there's comfort in those verses for those who recognize the fruit that the Spirit's producing in us. But there's also an incentive to godliness uh, for those who may feel that they are backsliding. There's a severe warning there. And this is especially true for those who who feel no testimony at all concerning the work of Christ in in their life. Those who are perfectly content to live in their sin. Who who see no problem. Who have no reason to fight against their sin. And they're... Their scripture is not at all ambiguous. Think of also the Lord uh, Jesus, who, who taught that uh, in Matthew 12, who speaks of the, the, the fact that the, the good tree bears good fruit. Or as Paul says in, in Romans 8, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If we are of the Spirit, and not of the flesh, as Paul teaches us, then we want to be led by the Spirit. And that also means that those who, who don't want to be led by the Spirit, who feel no, no desire to do the things of the Spirit, can have good reason to question whether the Spirit indeed dwells within them. Now, as we think about that, uh, we might ask, if you're looking at this from the perspective of, God, of God's sovereignty, we might ask, well, if God is sovereign and if His work of renewal is, is His work and I don't have any control over it, then what can I really do? do? Do I have any control over whether I will bear fruit? This is often a, a trap that, that Christians fall into, and we want to be careful not to trip over this, this logical dilemma. Uh, the mystery of, of God's sovereignty and our responsibility is not one that we'll ever be able to wrap our minds fully around. Uh, that's just part of the, the Christian life. We, we recognize God's work in us, even when we see it as our work as well. And yet we, we can't wrap our minds around how those two fit together. It's God's work, and yet it's our responsibility. And so, when, when Scripture gives warnings, those warnings should be taken seriously. One should never hear those warnings and sit back and say, Well, I hope that doesn't happen to me. I hope that the Spirit changes me before it's too late. But after all, it's His decision, not mine. So what can I do? If we do that, if we assume that we can just follow the flesh and wait for the Spirit to act in His time, then we will not be saved It would be a wrong way to read the warnings of Scripture. They're there for a reason so we would listen to them and respond to them. Those who are unbelieving will be destroyed. And on that day it will be clear to everyone that it wasn't God's fault that they sinned. It was their own fault and their own unwillingness to heed the warnings that God has given them. We can throw logical arguments at God and say, well, God, you should have changed me. Otherwise, how could I possibly be changed? But what good what good does a logical argument do on that day? Can anyone say after they've been judged and condemned by God for, for a lifetime of refusing to submit to Him, can anyone really say that it's not my fault, I'm not responsible for my sin? Every one of us knows that we are. And so the response that Scripture teaches to, to this question of the sovereignty of God is, is found there again in, in 2 Peter 1. Confirm your calling and election. Yes, it's God's decision, but you confirm it. That's your responsibility. Show, prove that God has chosen you. Let your life be the proof of your election. If we continually seek the renewal of the Spirit and pray for the renewal of the Spirit, and in our lives do the works of the Spirit, out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us, then we will recognize the Spirit's work within us. As we look back over time, we will see the Spirit having changed us. Let me urge you then, brothers and sisters, to consider again the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, that you, though dead in your sins, were not only redeemed by Christ, but also that now he sends his spirit into your hearts to renew you after his image. And that's the very thing, the very thing for which you were created. He does this for the ultimate goal that he would be glorified by you and also by your obedience. So let your life flow out of gratitude towards God so that His purpose of being glorified in you would be accomplished in in your life. In the words of Hebrews 13, verse 15, Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips who acknowledge His name. When we turn to the Ten Commandments in a couple of weeks, don't read them as a bare minimum, as a standard that you have to live up to to keep the title of Christian. Don't read them as things that you got to do in order to be saved. Understand them as a response of gratitude for what Christ has done in your life. A response to the wonderful news that He has paid your debt and brought you near to God because that was God's purpose for you for His ultimate glory. Amen. Let's respond by singing together from Psalm 56, stanza 5.